Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Hello and welcome to Belaboring the Point. I am your host, Kate Riga. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by TPM's own Nicole Lafont. Nicole, hello. Hi, thanks for having me today. We just wrapped up a conversation with Dr. Kathleen Jameson, where we kind of we discussed the merits of debates in general and in our current kind of fractured media political landscape when you have one you know, almost certainly general election presidential candidate who has proven himself hard to restrain both, you know, physically and rhetorically (laughs) during debate. So we kind of got into all of that. And, you know, I just have to say, Kathleen just completely kind of changed my mind about this because I think debates have gotten so uncomfortable since the Trump era. And then as, you know, as she kind of pointed out how his norm breaking behavior, his tactic of like relentless interruption and kind of mm-hmm. sullying other people's sound bites have become the primary debate tactic. You know, ever since that, I think debates have gotten really uncomfortable to watch. Um, yeah. And so I was kind of of the camp of, okay, well, do we need them? Right. We're headed for an almost certain kind of Biden Trump showdown. We, know fairly well where these men stand. But I have to say, she really just totally changed my mind about their importance. Yeah, I would say, I mean, you and I specifically are probably particularly pessimistic about debates as a strong political tool at this point, because (laughs) Kate and I have been spending, you know, 
countless nights over the past several months covering the debates for TPM. And it's hard. I mean, especially when you have Vivek Ramaswamy like screaming in Nikki Haley's ear. (laughs) It's like, what is the point of this? Why are we doing this? What am I learning besides losing brain cells? And I think, (laughs) yeah, the point that she made about, you know, I mentioned this at the end of the discussion, but the fact that, you know, it's not always exactly about, you know, persuading someone to vote one way or the other who already, you know, has like a predetermined idea of who they want to vote for, like debates form or like, you know, function as a useful tool in convincing people who weren't going to vote to vote after they see the truly, you know, evil and less evil performance. (laughs) And that's something that I, you know, in politics, working in politics and the cynicism of the day to day. It's like something we forget about because it's hard to imagine not voting and existing in that space of like where not voting is even an option. So I thought that Mm -hmm. was a really compelling point. Yeah. And kind of the factors that she laid out that make debates more important mapped on so neatly to this upcoming contest, you know, with kind of high dissatisfaction rates, with swaths of undecided voters, with an election that's going to be decided by the kind of marginal swing voters that that still exist, where you've got, you know, could be as high as like 45 to 48 percent of people kind of locked in. And then it's just the people in the middle who basically pick the president. I mean, all of those conditions are present now in a cycle where kind of seems I would put if I had to bet on it, I would probably put money that we won't have general election debates because Biden's camp is obviously worried about them. You know, he's the yeah. so kind of gaff happy and public speaking has never been his like biggest strength. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, with Trump, they're doing the whole we want to expose that Biden is old thing. But I mean, yeah. he just skipped all the primary debates. Right. So he's got his own kind of set of concerns that he thinks skipping debates will will strengthen his position. And that might change between now and, and the general. But I mean, last time what they did one, they, they yeah. agreed on <laughs> one total debate. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just interesting, especially And, you know, this is something I was thinking about that I wonder if the Biden camp's position will change on this, given the he's too old, he's senile, his his brains are leaking out of his ears argument, because you could argue the same way that Trump has benefited off this incredibly low bar in debates of old, right? Like if he doesn't kind of combust on stage, everyone's like, well, he acquitted himself more presidentially than I expected. You could expect that maybe Biden could kind of benefit off that same thing, that if he's Mm -hmm. coherent at all, it could kind of put a dent in the Trump's, uh, you know, he's a walking corpse argument. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was interesting. It was kind of nice and illuminating to, you know, have conversations about these debates and like, you know, just the fact that debates haven't always been a staple of presidential elections. But Mm -hmm. just thinking back to like Romney era and Obama era when like, you know, you could actually learn something about a party's like political policy from watching the debates. It's it kind of puts into stark view how 
deeply, you know, the Republican Party like does not have a policy platform right now outside of like culture wars and hating trans people. And I mean, the, you know, the primary debates that we covered were just, you know, mind bogglingly dumb. But the the ways in which a debate like typically functions kind of I don't know. It was interesting to have a conversation where we can kind of see and like think in real time how deeply like the Republican Party has fallen <laughs> in terms of having any coherent policy. I was thinking to you about that era that, you know, that first Obama Romney debate went really, really badly for Obama. And I that mm-hmm. was the biggest moment of panic of that campaign. And then he came back the second time and he was fine. But it was funny because in that way, it's almost kind of reverse expectations, you know, like Obama is this great public speaker, you know, our, you know, his rhetoric is soaring. And then when he mm. kind of stumbled in that first one, it was like, oh, my God, you know, is this going to kind of doom <laughs> his chances? Um, right. Which obviously didn't happen. But quite yeah. to think about. <laughs> yeah. See if she'll change your mind as well. And here is our conversation with Dr. Kathleen Jameson. Today, TPM's Nicole LaFond and I are joined by Dr. Kathleen Hall-Jameson. Kathleen is the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication, the Director of the University's Annenberg Public Policy Center, and the Program Director of the Annenberg Foundation Trust. She's authored or co-authored 18 books and, highly relevant for our conversation today, studies, among other things, campaign communication. Kathleen, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you. We're so glad to have you. So today we want to specifically drill down on debates, you know, their role in this presidential election cycle and their kind of overarching use in a landscape where media is increasingly fractured and voters increasingly polarized. So just to jump right into it, how do you think the role of debates has changed as our you know, political and media landscape has? Well, first, we need to remember that debates are not a given in presidential politics. They're actually relatively new in the history of politics. We had them for the first time at the presidential general election level in 1960. And there is no guarantee that we're going to have general election debates this fall. So their role could change dramatically in that we may not have them for the first time in a reasonable period of time. I mean, there was a period after 1960 where we didn't have them for a few elections and we paid the cost. Had there been general election debates in 1964, we might have debated whether the country was going to be going into Vietnam. I mean, effectively, both candidates took that topic off the agenda, and yet that would preoccupy the presidency and ultimately lead to the withdrawal of Lyndon Johnson in 1968 from the presidential contest completely. So there have been times in which we didn't have debates, and I wish we had. This is one of those times. So I think a first thing that we ought to say about presidential debates is they are valuable, even in a polarized time in which you have a fractured audience, in which people are likely to hear the debates through their own filters, and those filters can be strong partisan filters, debates perform an important accountability function. They increase the likelihood that we see multiple candidates, it may not simply be two candidates, but multiple candidates side by side and have a chance even if it doesn't change our vote, and it's unlikely to, to increase the likelihood that we understand what we're going to get if we elect one rather than the other candidate. 
there are significant differences between candidates in even the elections in which those differences aren't as stark as in others. And part of the reason that debates are valuable is they tie campaigning to governance by helping the electorate understand differences and similarities between candidates. And as a result, to increase the likelihood that we feel as voters that there's been some activity of ours that actually, by exercising choice, influenced the path of governance. You take those presidential debates away, even if they don't change one vote, and you minimize the likelihood that we see that connection. In that period after the 1960 election, you know, when you said the debates kind of dissipated for a while in the general election, was that because the candidates, it, was it similar today that they were the candidates were worried that they wouldn't perform well kind of thing, so they just opted out completely, or was it to avoid the Vietnam stuff? No, it was an, there was an incumbent advantage to not debating. So the, there's a disadvantage to an incumbent on average debating because the incumbent has the advantage of holding the office and holding the presidency. And in a debate, there's an equalizing function to the extent that the challenger can stand on the same stage, address the same questions competently and articulately. The incumbent loses the psychological advantage of perception that this person can perform the job because the person has performed the job. And so there's, in, in general, there's an advantage to a challenger coming into debates. Incumbents know that. So the reason the debates were revived in 76 was Gerald Ford was trailing behind Jimmy Carter and saw an advantage as the incumbent to debating. And there's been, there have been strong efforts to try to bring debates back. But what ultimately brought them back was Gerald Ford thought he'd be advantaged by bringing them back. Uh, interesting. Just wanted to piggyback off of something you said a few moments ago about, you know, viewers and voters coming to these debates with, you know, an established partisan lens already. Do you think that debates meaningfully sway voters or are voters waiting for the debates to make up their minds? Did they ever feel that way? What's what do you what's your take on that? If you could expand on it a little bit more. Well, first, in most elections, most people have made up their minds far before presidential debates. And debates, as a result, become means of deepening their conviction, not changing their minds. However, there, and, and, but for those people, there still is a useful informative function because for the first time they're hearing the other side and in, in direct comparison and having a better chance as a result of forecasting likely governance from either candidate. They're also hearing similarities between candidates that importantly forecast governance, areas in which candidates agree across the party divide. Pretty much you can bake in and assume you're going to get action in that area because regardless of who holds House and Senate the presidency, there's a party consensus ordinarily behind the nominee's position. And as a result, you're going to get change. So before answering your question about whether it affects outcome, let me say that the similarity that you can learn between the two candidates, similarities are as valuable as the differences as your forecasting governance. Let me give you an example. Uh, the, during the mid-1990s, there was a question about whether or not both candidates would support exempting from your capital gains X amount of your house value when you sold your house, if you had held your house for a certain number of years. The Republican candidate came out for it. In the debates, the Democratic candidate came out for it as well, general election debate. And at that point, if you had a house that you were about to sell, you should take it off the market because you could predict that coming that next spring, that next year, Congress was likely to pass that legislation and whichever candidate won was likely to sign it. That's actually what happened. 
So to the extent that you paid attention to that similarity between the candidates, you could change your behavior in a way that affected materially your economic well-being. So those kinds of things matter. Now, do the debates on average affect enough votes to affect outcome? No, they do not. Most elections, however, are close enough that if you have high numbers of undecided voters, they have the capacity at a, at a capacity that they don't have when elections are likely to be close. So when the candidates are widely divided in the polls, so when you've got Reagan versus Mondale, for example, the likelihood that the debates are going to matter and changing enough votes to affect outcome is relatively small. Carter versus Ford, however, close enough that debates could affect outcome. So a first rule is, when are debates likely to matter in terms of electoral outcome when the election is close? The second is when you have high numbers of undecided voters. So when, and this is an irony, when the electorate is disaffected with both candidates, you tend to have higher percents of the population that step, that step back, they're undecided, and they're undecided about whether they will vote as, at all as a result. So what a debate can do in that environment is increase the likelihood that one side mobilizes. It doesn't change how they would vote if they vote, it changes whether they would vote. And when they're undecided, you've also got the possibility that you might actually swing people into one camp or the other. I argue in a book called Cyber War, How Russian Trolls and Hackers Helped Elect a President, that that actually happened in 2016, that we had disaffected voters. There were a lot of voters who didn't like their choices that year. Does that sound familiar? And in that environment, a real risk that they weren't going to vote at all. You also had the prospect, because evangelicals are a reliable part of a Republican base, but were disaffected with a candidate who was three times married and had made some, shall we say, inappropriate comments <laughs> about what portions of women's anatomy he felt comfortable grabbing. Yeah. So in that environment, if they just stay home, Trump loses. You had a military vote that is pretty reliably a Republican vote. But here you've got someone who didn't serve, let's be charitable, when he could have, whether the bone spurs were real or not, um, and someone who'd made disparaging comments about a war hero, John McCain, and someone in that environment who probably you wouldn't guess on average would evoke wild enthusiasm in military families. If they stay home, if those tied to the military families stay home, if veterans stay home, Donald Trump can't win that election. It's a very close election. So think those things through and then say, and, and what happens on the Democratic side Hillary Clinton needs the black vote to mobilize for her. She doesn't need it at Obama levels, but she needs the black vote to mobilize. Suppose the black vote doesn't turn out at the same level as it needs to on average across Democratic races in order to bring home the votes that are needed to move the Democratic incumbent in. That's exactly what we had in 2016. You had constituencies that were not very happy with either side. The reason the black vote wasn't, wasn't happy with Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump was magnifying that fact in his ads, was that she had made a comment about super predators that was widely heard in that community to be referring to that community. And her husband, Bill Clinton, had put in place, then cast as crime control measures that increased incarceration rates disproportionately in the black community. So in that environment, you've got potentially a Democratic constituency disaffected, Republican constituencies disaffected, what do debates potentially do? They potentially cast the other side as so bad that you might default your vote back to casting it for the candidate who you're disposed to vote for if you vote at all, but were elected to vote for because you didn't particularly like this individual candidacy. 
in an election that's decided by 78,000 votes, it doesn't take much of a swing among those voters in order to affect outcome. And I provide polling data in the back of the book, Cyber War, that suggests that exposure to the debates hurt Hillary Clinton among key constituencies. And also, in that case, I make an argument that the press did a very poor job. They misframed questions drawn from the hacked content from the, 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 from the Democrats in order to cast as, as an assumption in questions that Hillary Clinton had said one thing in public, another thing in private. By building those assumptions into the questions illegitimately, I argue in the book, the debates created a bias against Hillary Clinton. So in an environment in which it doesn't take much to swing an election, it's possible debate exposure did in 2016. So when we look to places in which it may have affected outcome, close elections, first place you look. Second place you look, places in which you have high, high numbers of undecideds coming into the closing weeks. One characteristic of 2016 was we had a higher percent of undecided voters in the closing weeks than we historically had had. And as a result, since debates happen late in the electoral cycle, disproportionate likelihood that you're going to have some impact from the debates that you wouldn't otherwise have. Because once you've decided who you're going to vote for, the likelihood you're going to cast that vote is pretty high. The question is, if you haven't decided, are you influenceable? And the answer is yes. Part of the influence is for whom you'll vote, but a bigger influence, are you going to vote at all? Oh, that's so fascinating. And something that strikes me about that, too, is, you know, that first Clinton-Trump debate was highest viewership, you know, I think since the mid-70s or something of of general presidential debates. And now kind of where we are in the cycle now, viewership for, you know, given it's a primary debate, different beast, but the Republican primary debates, the cycle, viewership was relatively low. Um, And obviously, we had kind of Trump runaway polling and, and all of that in the background. But do you think that that kind of lack of interest hampered those candidates' ability to kind of maybe break out or, or you know, stage an earlier successful challenge against his kind of predetermined path to the nomination? Now, before answering your question, let me mm-hmm. say there's a value in primary debates apart from what it tells you about individuals and its role, the role it plays in the selection process. Because one of the ways in which we understand politics is through the lens of party. And to the extent that you get a sense of where the Republican Party is by seeing the range of difference. And you hear the contrast between that range of difference and what is on the Democratic side, because they're attacking the Democratic incumbent in this case. It's helping you clarify a vote that you might cast based on where you think you are in relationship to parties. And so if you listen to the Republican debates, apart from what you learned about DeSantis, et cetera, what you learned about Haley, uh, what you learned about any of the candidates, you learn that there are differences between the Republicans and the Democrat. When you don't have debates on the Democratic side, by the way, you don't get the same kind of clarification about what the range might be on the Democratic side. You're more likely as a result to think there's homogeneity on the Democratic side because you're hearing much more from the incumbent than you would, for example, if there were two or three challengers arguing against the incumbent from the right and from the left. So the first thing is primary debates perform an important function in telling us what the boundaries are within the which the party is operating. And that gives you a cognitive shortcut when you think in general about Republican candidates and in general about Democratic candidates. Now, does it make a difference when you have the candidates on the stage and the major party figure of the past incumbent isn't on the stage because the shadow in the room is actually counter-programming? So we can't look at the debates and say, 
they didn't attract large numbers without also saying Donald Trump counter-programmed to increase the likelihood that a good part of the Democratic base that wanted to just see Donald Trump and boo was watching Donald Trump. And a good part of the Republican base that wanted to see Donald Trump and cheer was off on another channel. So it's, it's not really fair to debates to say they didn't attract comparable numbers when the putative front runner and a former incumbent president and someone who has the name Donald Trump is deliberately trying to attract audiences. And he's trying to do it on a channel that automatic, that increases the likelihood that the natural constituency is going to go to, you know, to that channel. Now, when Fox sponsors the debate, you increase the likelihood that people will pick up the Republican debate. When Fox is over on, when Fox puts, you know, Trump is over in some other space, he's not a strong competitor because there's a natural gravitational pull for conservative voters to come onto Fox to view debates. And we see that during general election debates where Republicans gravitate toward watching on Fox, Democrats gravitate toward watching on MSNBC. They'll come back and forth, but they want to get their punditry out of places that are ideologically coherent with their, their existing dispositions. And I think that, you know, in the age of social media, everything's kind of um, been flipped on its head a little bit. And especially, you know, in this cycle we're currently in, a lot of voters are experiencing debates in like very short, brief clips that circulate on social media the day after. How does that change the experience? Well, first, the the impact of debates has never been from long term exposure of debates. The impact of debate mm -hmm. has come out of those little sound bites that news as traditional in traditional debates conventionalized mm -hmm. into sound bites, and they then became the lens through which we remember the debates. So, you know, for decades, I, I said in response to debates, turn off the television set as soon as the debate is over, so you don't hear the punditry and don't hear what they tell you was the important moment. What's the important moment for you is what's relevant to you and what issue distinctions mattered to you. And that may have nothing to do with what they thought was the gaffe of the night, which is traditionally where they're going to go, or the misplaced use of sports metaphors to try to find a knockout punch. So you can't find a knockout punch in an hour and a half of discourse. There is no such thing. And we haven't great. We should be grateful. We have not yet seen a candidate cross the stage to actually punch someone. Practical <laughs> purposes, what's happened now is that what was the way in which we came to remember debates through those short snippets that news featured repeatedly is now simply moving into a social media environment in which we've now democratized the process. And each of us in our social media feeds can say to others, oh, well, look at this, look at this, look at this. And so there's something healthy about that in some important ways. If we're talking to people who are like-minded, we're more likely to be talking about things that matter to people about the same kinds of issues. That, that may actually be an improvement. Uh, it, so this, this is not a change in the nature of what's happening. It's changing the ways in which it's distributed and the kinds of people who distribute it. And I love the idea that the segments of debates that are relevant to you get higher circulation among the people who are like you because they care about them as well. Um, and that individuals become advertisers for their candidates. Because when you clip the other candidate doing something foolish or your candidate doing something adept and you circulate it, you're basically becoming an advertiser for your candidate, which is a capacity we didn't have before. More of this scintillating content after these messages. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back to the show. So one piece of of debates, which has you know always been present, is that they're also about being you know theatrical elements, presentation as well as policy ideas, and you know that's kind of left me in a conflicted space when I was thinking about this. The notion that you know someone who's a gifted public speaker or particularly telegenic might come off better no matter the substance, the underlying ideas, which I guess is already a feature of campaigning. But where do you come down on that? The advantage of extended discourse is that the the empty-headed candidate can be programmed to give you a first-level answer on just about everything, given enough media training. But if a debate moderator does the debate moderator's job and repeatedly follows up, you find out whether there's substance behind you know the the appearance. So I'm not worried about the telegenic candidate. You, well, that's terrific. I'm not worried about the charismatic candidate. That's terrific. I'm worried about the telegenic charismatic candidate who has no substance and manages to campaign. And then we find out in governance isn't qualified to govern. Mm-hmm. What debates are good at because they're extended forms of discourse, if they're well moderated, is pushing back to try to find out where, what is behind the first answer that everyone is programmed to give. And you've got one of the most famous moments, and it's often misunderstood, when Dan Quayle is asked what would he do if he were to send to the presidency, if something were to happen to the president, and he as then as the putative vice president were to ascend, and he can't figure out what the answer should be to that question. And the reporters repeatedly ask him the same question again and again and again. Now, what we remember of that, he's actually asked the question four times. What we remember about that is Benson ultimately saying in response to Quayle's final answer that Jack Kennedy had a less, you know, had less accomplishments legislatively than did Quayle, which, by the way, is true. But Benson saying that you're no John Kennedy, what we lost in that was the problem for, for Quayle in that moment isn't that he made an analogy to Kennedy. He's actually making an accurate statement about Kennedy. John Kennedy had virtually no legislative accomplishments. And Dan Quayle had one. So by that tally, you could say Quayle one, John Kennedy zero. Fact check that one. Quayle gets it. What's important is he couldn't tell you what he would do if he were to ascend to the presidency. Mm-hmm. You know, what, there's, there's an answer that should be expected. You contact the allies. You, know, you, you make sure that the country is informed, that the cabinet is in place, that the president's agenda is going to continue. I mean, there's a fairly stock answer that you give to that. And Quayle struggled to find that through three successive questions. And on the fourth, he went to the Kennedy example. We lost track because of the soundbite nature of post-debate coverage of what that actually revealed. Confronted with, for example, the death of a president, he might not have known what to do as the vice president ascending to that office. Now, that, that was a debate moment that revealed a problem if he were put into that situation. That's what debates are good at. Debates, when they're well moderated, will get you past the facade. If someone is eloquent, intelligent, that's an asset in the presidency, not a liability, unless that's masquerading for competence when the competence isn't actually there. 
The bigger worry is the candidate who isn't telegenic can be highly competent. But since being articulate and good in media in multiple forms helps you be a better president, I would argue that candidate who can't do that actually in some ways is, is going to have more trouble being a good president. It's sad to say that, but it's true. And, and some of what we're measuring when we talk about that is simply the capacity to communicate. Capacity to communicate to the public is, in fact, an asset, obviously, both in running for president and being president of the United States. Yeah. Speaking of sound bites, I wanted to talk about format a little bit. I, I think I remember pretty clearly during the 2020 Democratic primaries when, you know, health care reform was a pretty major topic. And Bernie Sanders was asked to describe Medicare for all and given 30 to 60 seconds to do it. Do you think that, you know, policy positions can be meaningfully conveyed within those restraints? They, they can be meaningfully telegraphed. Hmm. And, and the question is, can they be telegraphed well enough that you have the contours and the contours then are helpful in understanding the particulars? In general, when one has to simplify any message in any environment and good communication does that as a means of gaining access to the additional understanding that comes when you develop the line of argument. And so when someone struggles to say in a minute what the contours of a policy are, that's not a good sign. Um, and we've had presidents, by the way, whose habits of mind and communication skills were revealed in debates and did forecast a weakness in the presidency. Jimmy Carter was very good in answering at incredible detail without ever finding a thesis statement or a contour of an argument that would let you take away something central about the, the position that he was offering. And that was a problem as a presidency. This was, this was a presidency that was too far in the weeds and not focused enough on clearly articulating major positions that were being driven throughout the presidency in ways that the public could understand and could remember. It's part of the reason, by the way, that telegraphing things you know, in, in language that ties back to an incumbent is helpful. Uh, Bidenomics, for example, ties Biden to an economic record. Obamacare tied Obama to a health care initiative. And in, in general, that also then becomes a defining char characteristic of their legacy. I mean, remember, there was a debate. The Republicans were, ta were attacking the Affordable Care Act, as Obama, and Obama cleverly decided to adopt the label. That's going to be his legacy. A big part of his legacy is going to be that he got that through. So to the extent that you can tie the incumbent to a policy category and then build that category out in an understanding of what the initiative actually meant. You can benefit the, the, the policy and the incumbent, assuming that they're popular. And if something's good for the nation, eventually it will be popular. The problem is sometimes it takes a while for the public to experience the benefits of policies or the harms of policies. So we've seen moderators struggle to fact check Trump on the debate stage in real time. And, and some have really put their shoulder into it. But, you know, due to the kind of volume and, and speed at which he tends to lie, you know, it's all but kind of guaranteed that some of them will slip through unchecked. And, and maybe the punditry can clean that up afterwards. But, you know, not everyone keeps the TV on. So do you think it's still worth doing debates with Trump specifically, kind of given his his penchant for untruth? Well, first, we're in a multimedia environment right now that gives journalism capacities it didn't have when all we had was a television screen and we are sitting on our couch. For practical purpose, we now can, can easily dual screen. And as a result, 
we can watch in real time as fact checkers is being offered in debates. One of the problems with fact checking in real time, by the way, is you can get it wrong and that can be consequential. Candy Crowley tried to fact check Obama in the Obama-Romney debate and she got it wrong. And that's that's consequential. I mean, if a journal and I've just made the argument earlier that two different moderators got wrong the framing of questions to Hillary Clinton. They were factually wrong about the way they framed the issue to Hillary Clinton. That can do real damage because we tend to trust that the moderator is the custodian of facticity and as a result to trust the moderator. So it, the danger is that in real time you might get it wrong. Fact checking is very difficult and human speech is not highly precise. It's very difficult to listen in real time when you're in an environment such as a debate and hear every word the candidate has said. You mishear something, you fact check incorrectly, you may cause a problem. And you also can distract from the flow between the candidates. What I favor is not fact checking in real time, but saying that's disputed, Mr. President, or that's disputed, Senator, whatever. And that becomes the bookmark so that if you're dual screening, you can immediately see what's happening and journalism can continue to intersect it then across time. So I favor laying down the marker, but not trying to do the fact because you have to face a second question, not simply do you flag it or not, but then what do you say about how it is to be corrected? And what I'd like to say for a moderator is that's disputed and then the public goes to the fact checking function. And it goes to multiple sources it trusts that we're putting up in real time. And ideally, we put up ahead of the debates because most claims that are made in debates that are problematic, you can anticipate. I help found factcheck.org with Brooks Jackson. One of the things we do is look at all the claims they've made before a debate, and we try to make sure you're ready for those claims so that you, when you hear them, you yourself as an audience member are likely to be able to say, wait a minute, I don't think that one's right. Or at least I think that one's contested. So I favor having the, mar- the moderator be on well enough informed to be able to say that's disputed or to say, you know, I, I believe that's wrong. Yep. That's, I believe it was not that. It's something that just marks it. Mm-hmm. But a debate gives the other candidate the chance to then fight the statement if they want to. So that, that shifts the focus back to letting this be an exchange between two candidates. If the moderator becomes the third candidate on the debate stage by constantly fact-checking one candidate, you're going to minimize the likelihood that people get the advantage of hearing both sides exchange on all of those. And in some of the cases in which you've got a dispute about the facts, you are in such technical domain that it doesn't make a great deal of difference. So how does the poor moderator decide, does this pass the threshold where I should say it? And so, you know, or not which is an argument actually for not playing up the disputed claim, because there might be things that then you assume if they're not disputed by the moderator, or at least the moderator said disputed, must be true. You know, remember when the fact-checking functions started to move online, some people made the assumption that when something wasn't being marked as potentially false, that it must be true, and that would be problematic. So I like the fact that we've got dual screen, we've got internet capacities, we've got all of our handheld devices, we've got all of our own social networks, And I hope those are helping us check in real time against sources we can trust. I've always recommended keep a fact-checking site open, keep the AP open as well. AP does very good fact-checking, has always done historically very good fact-checking on on debates. And then pundits after the fact, focus on those things where you've had time to do a good job and make sure that you're covering things that actually matter to voters, not things that are inconsequential. And that's, that's the problem when you've got a candidate who has real trouble with facticity um, and also has real co- trouble with duplicity 
because you could make the post-debate coverage all about that and lose the actual issue distinctions and similarities you could have learned from the debate, which is far more relevant to voters. Yeah, it's such a good point about the dual screen situation. I think that's something that has already, you know, has just become natural when you're even just watching a TV show. <laughs> so yeah, that's a really good point. I wanted to ask, like, do you think that for Trump opting out of the debates so far has had any downsides for him? No, um, it has not. Um, the, I mean, Trump would have legitimized the other candidates had he come into the environment with them. I mean, they, the, the reality is he's he's got the same situation that incumbents have. In general, incumbents are not advantaged by debates. So you know, if you're ahead in the polls, you don't want to debate because you don't need to. You need yeah. to debate when you're behind in the polls. And the problem, if we take general election debates off the table this year, because you know Biden and Biden campaign reasonably is going to say Trump didn't think he needed to debate in the Republican primaries, and you know Trump in the last debates did not behave honorably. Um, the, the, you know, and he interrupts people constantly. He doesn't follow the rules. So, I mean, there's both sides have an excuse to not debate this year. And they also have the argument. Everybody knows everything about us. So we're not brand new. We've both been presidents. So there actually, this year is a reason that strategic reason that each candidate might decide not to debate. We should, as a public and as a journalistic community, be demanding debates. And would, there, there's a debate commission report that, that we brought out after the 2012 election. I think it came out in 2015. Uh, take a look at it on the Annenberg um, Public Policy Center site. It was the people who had worked with candidates over the past elections prior to, through 2012. Um, it was shared by, shared by Anita Dunn and Beth Myers, major Republican and Democratic consultants. It had the who's who of the debate establishment. That is the people who helped shape the debates for each side, equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats. It had a whole series of recommendations about how we could make debates more substantive, how we can increase the likelihood that candidates are held accountable for what it is they offer voters. If we could get those kinds of things institutionalized and then have a candidate who would stay within the norms, we would have better debates than we had historically, and debates have been pretty good historically. The problem is, what do you have? What happens when you have a candidate who won't follow any of the rules? And that's the dilemma when you're dealing with Donald Trump. Um, and you're also now increasingly conventionalizing a very unfortunate tendency. And this has been done on both sides. Look at the vice presidential debate in 2016, which is the debate that more viewers fled more quickly than any debate in the history of politics, because both the Democrat and the Republican decided that it was advantageous to interrupt the other so that nobody could get a clean soundbite into the post-news environment. And in that environment, you could not differentiate the candidates. They were trying to assure virtually that nothing of substance ever got through that would advantage the other side. The audience basically voted with its, with its fingers. It clicked to get onto other channels as fast as it could. Donald Trump has now conventionalized that sort of behavior inside debates. And the decision to turn the mics off when candidates weren't on mic is a solution. So I mean, we've got to figure out if we're going to have debates, how do you get rid of the disruptive tendencies that increasingly have infected them? And turning off your mic when you haven't been asked a question or when you're out of time is, I think, a very good idea. It wasn't in the debate commission report because we actually you know, hadn't anticipated the problem. Because um, up to that point, it hadn't been a problem. We did, however, get, recommend getting rid of the live audience. The, and that doesn't mean the get rid of the audience at home, which is alive, get rid of the, the audience within the auditorium, <laughs> because the, the booing, hissing, and applauding helps shape voters' responses, viewers' responses at home. 
So you don't need that audience there. We know those cues can affect at a very primal level audience response. We recommend to get rid of that, that, that audience that's able to be heard. And if you watch a debate carefully, you will hear the choreography among the followers of the candidates trying to advantage their candidate and some succeeding better than others. Some, in effect, making it very difficult for one candidate to speak if that candidate, for example, is Chris Christie attacking Donald Trump. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about is we've had a lot of these town halls kind of filling up the media landscape, the one candidate with you know, voters with kind of pre-selected questions. You know, what do you see as kind of the pros and cons of that versus the more traditional debate? The, we saw in the in a Bush versus Clinton debate, um, the and and this is you know, Bush Senior, Bush Senior versus Clinton debate, an instance in which a question was unintelligible, um, and it, 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 the question literally made no sense. The, and the, the person who asked the question was perfectly well-intentioned, but someone hadn't properly screened the question. One of the problems with voters asking questions is they, they aren't skilled in asking precise questions. To the extent that the questions are, that we work with the questions, the process works to get the question to be clear. There's a real advantage. There's, the reason I'm mentioning the, the, the Carol Simpson instance in the Bush-Clinton debate is because George Bush got the first question, and you couldn't make any sense of what the question meant. He actually made a good faith effort to try to answer the question, but he couldn't figure out what she was actually asking. Clinton got the advantage that he could watch that exchange. And what the pundit said is, look, he moved empathetically toward her, and that was what was important about the moment. That wasn't what was important about the moment. What was important about the moment was the question was unintelligible, and it was unanswerable as phrased. And how do you say to a voter, your question doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and, but George Herbert Walker Bush did try diplomatically to say, could you clarify that for me? Then the moderator came in and actually made it worse by not clarifying the question. So that's the danger. The danger is journalists are skilled at asking questions that are designed to get answers. So there's an advantage in the moderator format. But that said, the advantage in the town hall format is these are people who are much more like the audience than the reporter. And they're more likely to have interests that are tied to the audience than the reporter. The tendency of reporters is to want to advance the news agenda. The tendency of people asking questions in town halls is to figure out how this is going to affect my life. And if the question is going to be, how, how is your candidacy going to affect my life? That's a pretty good question. If you get it particularized into some area with some narrative about what your life is like, that's involving television. And you're looking at different people differently situated. They're, and they come from different kinds of backgrounds. There's something intrinsically interesting about that. I mean, assuming that they're asking good questions that get answers about how the policies would affect them. That's good television as well. So what I've always liked about the town hall is in, in paired with moderator questions from journalists, you get the news agenda advanced, which means you get issues deepened that matter to people who are already well-informed. But you also in the town halls get back to some things that for voters are pretty basic. You know, I'm having trouble getting a job. What are, what are your policies going to do? I don't have health care. What are my policies going to do? Children were killed in my school by gun violence. What do you? Those are kinds of things that frame the election in a, through a personal lens that is involving for audiences and can usefully create issue distinctions among candidates as well as identify similarities. Also, it's harder for candidates to duck questions from individuals who are voters. Candidates are skilled in ducking press questions. 
But there's something deeply offensive about seeing a human being you identify with ask, asking a question which you understood and then realizing the candidate has not answered that question. So I like town halls as long as they exist in combination with a moderator structure that lets the people who do know how to ask questions well, that's what they do for a living, and know how to elicit accountable information from people, that's what they do for a living, as long as we also have that in the menu. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kathleen, thank you so much for running us through this. This has been a fascinating conversation. You've really, you've revived my faith in debates. Now I'm <laughs> desperate for them again. <laughs> I, I want everybody to wear, to wear a button that says, I want my candidate to debate. So I want people to stop thinking about, is it tactically advantageous for my candidate? I, if my candidate wants to be president, I want my candidate to debate because I think we're running a real risk that a very valuable form, and I will close with this, of communication that has historically increased the knowledge level of the public in ways that are relevant to governance, even though on average it's not affect votes, that, that contribution is really important in a system of government such as ours. And as a result, if debates are well covered and well structured, they are to some extent a counteractant to some of the pervasive cynicism that's out there. Because what they say is most likely to reflect what they're going to do. That's historically true. And that tie between campaigning and governance is actually at the core of our idea of a representative democracy. Amen. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on today. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Belaboring the Point with Kate Riga is a TPM podcast. The show is hosted by me, reporter Kate Riga. The show is produced by the excellent Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to our good friend, Why Not Jansveld, for our podcast theme song. And thanks to our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.